Content warning. Topics covered in this week's episode are less than pleasant, to say the least. Many of the things covered are not sugar-coated for the comfort of white fragility, lest we try to speak on these topics as authentically and truly as we get them in their information and in our opinions. Thank you for understanding. Welcome to Uncensored Sass, the podcast. My name is Rai. And I'm Julia. In this podcast, we discuss facts and our opinions on a variety of topics. This week, in honor of Black History Month, we're discussing the Black Lives Matter movement. Do you want to talk about or mention anything about Black History Month before we go into the history of Black History Month? So here's the thing. I think they deserve more than a month. Reparations. But I think that's a discussion for another time. If you are nice to Black people once a year, please at least make it Black History Month. Before I dive into Black History Month, I just wanted to do a little did you know. Uh, This came from history.com. Did you know that the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, was founded on February 12, 1909, the centennial anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln? I did not know that. Just a little fun fact there. Did you know? That's that's really cool. What do you know about Black History Month? Do you have any ideas to like when it started, why we celebrate Black History Month, anything like that? I don't know what was like the pivoting moment that established Black History Month as we know it today. I do know overall that we mayonnaise colored people have been pretty shit throughout everything to people of color and people of African descent in like specifically. So I know it's kind of like, for me, it feels like a half-assed way to be like, sorry, we're such shitheads here have 28 days. And we just kind of like expect gratitude. But as per like when it started, I have no idea. It has been in effect my entire the entirety of my memorable life and it was just something always that existed and i don't know what the what that turning point was what what actually lit the fire to create it so the story of black history month also known as african american history month begins in 1915 half a century after the 13th amendment abolished slavery in the united states no one ever said we did anything fast In September of 1915, the Harvard-trained historian Carter G. Woodson and the prominent minister Jesse E. Moreland founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, an organization dedicated to researching and promoting achievements by Black Americans and other peoples of African descent. The precursor to Black History Month was created in 1926 in the United States when historian Carter G. Woodson and the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History announced the second week of February to be Negro History Week. So originally, Black History Month was actually Negro History Week. And it wasn't in 1915. That's just when 
they established the foundation to what would eventually become. And then in 1926, they established, you said the second week? So what they said was the second week of February would be dedicated to Negro History Week. Yeah. And so that was almost, okay, so 1915 was 50 years out from when they were emancipated. Mm -hmm. And then almost another and almost another 15 years until they would get a, their first week. So actually, it's, it's like 11 years. That's almost 15. So a little note here is that there's no information as to why it took 11 years for Negro History Week to come about. I mean, I think we all really know the answer to that, though. I'm sure we do. I, they're just on where I was able to get the information from Wikipedia and History.com. There was no information about why it took 11 years so I yeah. don't know why it starts with the mention of the 1915, why they started to do this research, founded the Association of the Study of Negro Life and History, and then decided 11 years later, let's make a Negro History Week. Like, I guess it, it, it took 11 years for it to gain traction. There just wasn't very much information as to why it took 11 years. No, that's fair. I'm not going to speak for you, but I think for me, I feel like I can safely assume that it's because they faced pushback from the white community, the white people who are just like, well, I don't understand why you need this. You're free. What else do you want? Be grateful. That's kind of like a lot of the pushback that we see today. And, and these things don't really change all that much. So I can only imagine they were having very similar conversations when approaching this topic to introduce this week. This week, the second week of February, was chosen because it coincided with the birthday of Abraham Lincoln on February 12th and that of Frederick Douglass on February 14th, both of which dates black communities had celebrated together since the late 19th century. Negro History Week was the center of the equation. Yeah. Makes sense. At the time of Negro History Week's launch, Woodson contended that the teaching of black history was essential to ensure the physical and intellectual survival of the race within a broader society. And then I have a quote here if you want to hear the whole thing. Please, yes. If a race has no history, it has no worthwhile tradition. It becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world, and it stands in danger of being exterminated. The American Indian left no continuous record. He did not appreciate the value of tradition, and where is he today? The Hebrew keenly appreciated the value of tradition, as is attested by the Bible itself. In spite of worldwide persecution, therefore, he is a great factor in our civilization. I think that's really powerful, and I think that encompasses a lot of what the community has struggled with, is maintaining their identity through their culture and through their traditions and through their accomplishments because so much of it was stripped from them and so like a lot of people don't know the country of origin town of origin they can't trace back ancestors beyond being moved to the country so having something to bring you together as a community to celebrate your history together in this situation that you've been forced into, I think that's a great move toward the right direction 
for them as a community. Yeah, and I just want to break down the quote itself because I don't think Woodson meant anything of ill intent when he mentioned that the American Indian left no continuous record. Where is he today? I don't think he meant anything ill. The American Indian or Native Americans, as we call them today, had a spoken history. Some of them had histories written in beads. Some of them had histories written on cave paintings and walls, but they didn't have like physical paper records, a lot of them. So when they were ultimately slaughtered and massacred and thrown into reservations and their culture was destroyed, it was literally destroyed. Yeah. So a lot of Native Americans today don't know where they came from and they can't trace their history back because they don't know because it wasn't kept. And he compares it to literally the Bible, which comes from the Hebrew nation and the Hebrew beliefs. So you can compare one that is over 2,000 years old as opposed to one that is equally as old but has no history. Yeah. It's been ripped from them by the same people who would have ripped families from the shores of their own country. Unfortunately, yes. I think all of that is worth mentioning, and I just kind of wanted to say, like, he didn't mean ill intent. At least I personally don't think he did. I don't think he understood the gravity of what he was saying, because Christianity and Catholicism was the colonizer's religion, and it was all that they had to cling to as per religion when they were moved here. And so I don't, I just don't, I don't think he understood the gravity of it. Well, yeah. And it, you know, if anybody who's listening wants to go back to our episode on the Native American cultures that we discussed back in November, uh, Rye went into a lot of detail as to how their history was stripped from them. And we only just started learning about this stuff within the last few years. Somebody in 1915 I don't think he knew very much about it then. Yeah, he would have had no idea what was to come for indigenous families within the next 50 to 100 years. Or what was happening at that time. Yeah, that's also true because the the ability of communication is not what it is now. We've never had this ability to communicate so quickly. And so there's a good chance that a lot of this stuff was happening almost coincide with him. But there would have been little to no way he could have found out. No, he would have known. Even being Harvard educated. So I just have a general question that's sort of off topic, but is still related. Did you ever watch or read any of the Hunger Games movies, books, anything about that? I watched the movies. Okay. I think this was covered a little bit in the movies, uh, more so obviously in the books. But there was this whole situation where each district was kind of kept in silence from each other. Yeah. Obviously our main character is takes place in District 12. Growing up knows very little about any of the other districts until she tours them. Yeah. That's what this kind of reminds me of where the black community probably knew very little if anything about what was happening in the Asian community, the Native American community, and vice versa. Because they were probably intentionally kept in the dark from each other. Because why would you want them to communicate? They would rise up together. That And knowledge is power. And that that is only true in the hindsight that is history. 
because a lot of people, even in 1915, were illiterate. And so even if his stuff was being written down, it was a privilege and it was a show of your class to be able to read. By 1929, the Journal of Negro History was able to note that with only two exceptions, officials with the state departments of education of every state with considerable Negro population had made the event known to that state's teachers and distributed official literature associated with the event. Well, good. And I hope all those books are still circulated. It's not been banned. Well, I hope it's been updated, but yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I hope it has been updated, but not, like, erased. Churches also played a significant role in the distribution of literature in association with the Negro History Week during its initial interval, with mainstream and black press aiding in the publicity effort. Throughout the 1930s, Negro History Week countered the growing myth of the South's lost cause as epitomized in both the novel and the film Gone with the Wind. The myth argued that slaves had been well-treated, that the Civil War was a war of Northern aggression, and the blacks had been better off under slavery. When you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions, Woodson wrote in his book, The Miseducation of American Negro. You do not have to tell him not to stand here or go yonder. He will find his proper place and will stay in it. That makes me so angry. That's literally just brainwashing. And the Civil War was not just about North aggression. And that pisses me off because people still believe that to this day. To this day. That pisses me off. Black people were not better off as slaves. Maybe you were better off with them as your slave. Because then you didn't have to worry about them thinking or behaving like a person with free fucking will. Or maybe you didn't want to suffer the consequences for fucking them over. Because if you could control what they think, you could control how they feel, you can control what they do, you don't have to suffer the consequences of your shitty actions. So I think this paragraph that I just read kind of gives you an idea as to how important Black History Month has come to be. Yeah. Because that's what it was fighting against. And like you said, a lot of people still believe that today. Imagine how many people believe that back then. Oh, I know. I just... Oh, goodness. Like, I'm shaking. I'm so mad. It's fucking idiots. And it's the truth. And the truth hurts. Yeah. Before we get into what turned Black History or Negro American History Week into Black History Month... Let me just read off this last little sentence. Sure. It says, despite the myth and blacklash, Negro History Week grew in popularity throughout the following decades, with mayors across the United States endorsing it as a holiday. Good. Like they fucking better. We're going to talk now about actual Black History Month as opposed to the week and what caused it to become an entire month. Yeah. Okay. The Black United Students, first Black Culture Center, Kumba House, where many events of the first Black History Month celebration took place, Black History Month was first proposed by Black educators and the Black United Students at Kent State University in 
February 1969. The first celebration of Black History Month took place at Kent State a year later from January 2nd to February 28th in 1970. So it's the first event of Black History Month ever. Wow. And it took almost two months. Good for them. I mean, it was a big deal and it set the course for literally every year after. So 1970 was the first celebration of Black History Month. Yeah. So within our parents' lifetimes, it went from one week to a whole month. Mm-hmm. And um, notable that it was by Kumba House, which was the first Black Culture Center through the Black United Students, and it happened at Kent State. That's awesome. Leave it to that generation's collegiate and educated young adults to make change happen. That's how it happens. Keep in mind, too, that this was shortly after, if not during, the height of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Black Panther, Vietnam. Yeah, there was a lot going on. Yeah, all that was happening. So clearly some good is going to happen out of all of this chaos. And, you know, obviously we know about the other good, but this was one of them. Yeah. This is undercredited. It is. I I never heard anything about this in all of my education. So thank you for finding it and, and, you know, going over it. Yeah, I think one of the things that often is overlooked is the history of. And the history of Black History Month usually isn't talked about. They usually just dive right into Black public figures, Black representation. They don't usually talk about how it came to be, which is, I think, an important distinction. If you know why we're even celebrating this or how this celebration came about, it kind of puts more context and importance on it. Yeah. Given a lot of the oppression that the Black communities and Black people in America have dealt with, this may not have happened. Had the white supremacists, had the white people in charge that tried to oppress this had their way, we would not have a Black History Month today. So it's important to recognize how it came to be. Absolutely. Six years after that, Black History Month was being celebrated all across the country in educational institutions, centers of Black culture and community centers, both great and small, when President Gerald Ford recognized Black History Month in 1976, during the celebration of United States Bicentennial. Wow. He urged Americans to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of Black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. That's awesome. And that would be nice if people would do that Today, too. In the Black community, Black History Month was met with enthusiastic response. It prompted the creation of Black History Clubs, an increase in interest among teachers and interest from progressive whites. On February 21st, 2016, Virginia McLaurin, a 106-year-old Washington, D.C. resident and school volunteer, visited the White House as part of Black History Month. When asked by President Barack Obama why she was there, McLaurin said, a black president, a black wife, and I'm here to celebrate black history. That's what I'm here for. According to blackhistorymonth.gov, during Black History Month throughout the year, reflect on more than 400 years of black history and heritage in national parks and communities across the country. 
for more information on this Heritage Month, please go check out this website. Again, it's blackhistorymonth.gov. It's good. So a little bit more information. Not going to be covered in this episode, but I did kind of want to touch on it. Yeah. Black History Month celebrated in the following countries. So other than the United States, we have the United Kingdom, Canada, and the Republic of Ireland. Nice. Other History Months, we've got Filipino American History, LGBT History, Women's History, Disability History, and Dalt History. And then other Heritage Months, we have Arab American, Gay and Lesbian Pride, Irish American, Italian American, Jewish American, National Hispanic, National Tibet, Native American Indian Heritage, Polish American, Puerto Rican Heritage, South Asian Heritage, Asian Pacific American Heritage, and Haitian Heritage. So we're not going to cover any of those. I just felt the need to list them because when you say History Month, people think Black History. There's yeah a list of so many others that are actually celebrated as well. But for obvious reasons in the U.S., Black History Month is much more impactful. Well, I think that the LGBTQ history, I think that's just June and that's Pride, which is pretty prominent. Unless it's not June, but I think it's also incredibly prominent but yeah that's really cool a lot of those i didn't know existed so that's really cool moving forward we'll have to touch on those in another episode yeah lgbt history month is actually in october oh okay yeah all right so it's separate from pride i think it needs to be separate from pride that's totally fair yeah i mean my personal opinion i think it's one thing to be prideful of your sexuality it's another thing to honor the history of people from your community And I don't think that they should be lumped together. I'm going to mention one thing and then we can move on about pride. The reason we have pride is because of an African-American trans woman. And the trans people of color are still the most vulnerable of the LGBTQ community. And we need to do everything in our power to protect them. Yeah. And... Gay and Lesbian Pride Month, which I mentioned earlier in the Heritage Months, that one actually is June. Okay. So LGBT history is in October, but Gay and Lesbian Pride is kind of lumped together with Pride Month. So anyway, moving on. Now we're going to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. Okay. So before we get into it, a lot of this information is sourced from Wikipedia unless otherwise stated. And a lot of it has been either paraphrased or edited for this podcast for time or just relevance. So just keep that in mind that if I discuss something and it's shorter than it is in actually Wikipedia, it's because I don't have time to go into the entirety of said section. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we only have so much time. Yeah. Is there anything you want to say in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement before we dive into it? Yeah. So, I very much am an ally and an accomplice of the Black Lives Matter movement, and in saying that Black Lives Matter and any other phrases attributed to such movement, a lot of the conversation goes, well, you know, what about these people? What about these people? And my favorite metaphor for it, 
And this is a little long-winded, and I apologize. But so imagine you're at a dinner table with your family, right? And everyone gets a plate of food except you. And you're not allowed to eat. But someone else at your table goes for seconds, and you're like, hey, what about me? I, I need to eat. I need to... I need this to survive. And they go, well, I'm hungry too. It's like, okay, sure. But I haven't eaten at all. Can I have my first plate before you go for a second? And it's very much a similar conversation when it comes to Black Lives Matter and when it's opposed with All Lives Matter or anything else. It's like, of course All Lives Matter. The problem is, is that Black Lives have not been treated in such a way that they, that they feel like they matter. And in no way is saying Black Lives Matter saying anybody else's life doesn't. It's just saying, hey, treat me like I'm a living being, please. Like I'm a human, like I fucking matter. And that's all it is. Yeah, and we'll touch upon that later, too. I just want to make sure that you give any opinions you have about it before we dive into any facts. Whether or not the opinions are either validated or contradicted. But it's important that you speak your piece prior to having said knowledge so that you can reflect on it later. Yeah. Do you know anything about Black Lives Matter outside of what the media has taught you? Like, do you happen to know, like, when it was started, why it was started, anything like that? I don't think that I have an accurate timeline in my head. I do know that it grew to prominence after the death of George Floyd. But whether it existed before then or not is not something I'm privy to. The George Floyd murder was so earth-shattering for a lot of people that it really sparked a huge push in the movement. That's all I know. So when did you first learn about Black Lives Matter? I first learned about it in the George Floyd riots. So it would be like late 2019, very early 2020. I just remember sitting at home, watching the riots, watching the protests, watching the backlash, watching the atrocities that were continuing to happen on our streets. Okay. That's when I first became introduced to it. Okay. So before I go into any explanation, do the names Trayvon Martin or George Zimmerman ring any bells for you? Yes. Yeah. Trayvon Martin was a literal child, and George Zimmerman was a grown man with a concealed weapon. And I don't remember the specific details of the altercation, but it ended up in the death of the child, and it sparked a huge controversy because, once again, the justification that went into the loss of that life was just just gross. Okay. So I'm going to go and read a few paragraphs for you, and then we, we can touch back on how you feel about Black Lives Matter or anything that I've said, okay? Yeah. Okay. Black Lives Matter, also known as BLM, is a decentralized political and social movement that seeks to highlight racism, discrimination, and inequality experienced by Black people. When its supporters come together, they do so primarily to protest incidents of police brutality and racially motivated violence against black people. According to Newsweek.com, 
Black Lives Matter began online in 2013 with the hashtag Black Lives Matter after the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the shooting death of Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old black teenager in Miami, Florida. Since then, the BLM movement has become one of the leading organizations against police brutality and racism in the United States. Yeah, okay. So it's been around since 2013. Moving on, the Black Lives Matter Network was also created in 2013. It was founded and characterized as an online platform that provided activists with a common set of beliefs and aims. A set of guiding principles for the local Black Lives Matter chapters has been requested in the past. However, currently there are no recorded central structure or hierarchy. One of the founding members has commented that the network was not interested in policing who is and who is not a part of the movement. That's good. The unfortunate part about that is that it does make it really confusing when it is reported on by the press. Yeah. Because you can't allocate what comes from the actual movement and what is just used as like a hashtag or what is a mask to hide certain deeds, if that makes any sense. Yeah. No, I get that. But I think it's a way of not gatekeeping access to the activi- like the activism, you know, to where you don't have to meet certain qualifications. Because I think, at least at that time, and I don't know about now, but it's important to have as many allies and associates as possible. Because the bigger you've got, the more you've got, the more weight you have in turning and making a change. It's another double-edged sword where anybody can do something, but they can do it in the name of Black Lives Matter, and it can be valid because of these same reasons that mean that people who are genuinely interested can be given admitted access without having to quote-unquote prove themselves or without having to qualify or do anything to just, like, you can just exist as an ally and as an accomplice and as associate and not have to jump through any hoops. Yeah, you don't have to be black to be a part of the Black Lives Matter. Yeah. The downside to it is that, like, the riots, the looting can be under the names of Black Lives Matter and because Black Lives Matter doesn't have anybody saying yes or no, it's very easy for the media to be like, Black Lives Matter did this. They're a terrorist group. Yeah. No. So what's supposed to be this progressive moving forward stand up for yourself organization is kind of in this gray area of like, what do you actually stand for? Because nobody's stepping up to say that. And that isn't to say it's bad, but maybe that would help. I don't know. But that's one of the things that that came up. And for me personally, that was a confusing portion of my life when I was trying to make sense of it. Because on the one hand, you had the tragic death of Trayvon Martin. Then you had this community stepping up and saying, we matter, let's protest this, this is fucked up, you need to stand up for him, you know, he's important, we're important. Then you had the riots. And the riots were also, quote unquote, Black Lives Matter. Then you're like, "Mm, actually, that one's not okay. Yeah. This coming from somebody who is not part of that community... And we'll talk about this later, but it's important to kind of keep in mind the mindset of how you feel about riots right now. The confusion between who runs it, who's associated with it, all of that, 
has caused a lot of confusion about the movement in the media due to the actions or statements from the chapters or individuals sometimes being attributed to Black Lives Matter as a whole. For example, Matt Pierce, writing for the Los Angeles Times, commented that, quote, the words could be serving as a political rallying cry or referring to the activist organization, or it could be a fuzzily applied label used to describe a wide range of protests and conversations focused on racial inequality, unquote. Okay. Meanwhile, the BLM movement grew to include a variety of different groups and individuals. Campaign Zero was launched in 2015 to promote policy improvements to prevent police violence. Recommendations for policing reform included stopping broken windows, policing, boosting community supervision, and establishing tougher limits for the use of force. New York Times writer John... Elgren stated that the several activists raised worries that the campaign was too focused on legislative solutions for police brutality. Black Lives Matter also supports movements and issues other than police violence against black people, such as LGBTQ activism, feminism, immigration reform, and social justice. Yeah, it's all hand in hand. We wouldn't have made the strides that we have today in feminism and LGBT rights if they hadn't pushed. We owe everything that we have as women and for me as a queer person to every movement made by these historical black figures and them risking everything including like life, limb and livelihoods and their families to make this place better for all of us. When you think about it in a timeline context, you've got the abolition of slavery, and then you've got voting rights and rights in the government for black men. And then soon to follow is women's rights for all races. So at this point, if there had not been the abolishment of slavery, if there had not been rights for black American men, women would not soon have followed. I think a lot of our momentum came from seeing that if they can do it, so can we. Yeah, we owe so much of what we have today rights-wise to those movements. And I think that the, the BLM movement is, is going to make great things happen for future generations, too. Yeah. And just for context, we're talking about just what happened in America. We're not talking about other countries, because I do know yes. that women's rights for other countries varies depending on the country. Yeah, everything is, is strictly American-centric. Moving on, we're going to talk now about policing use of excessive force. Yeah. So I only have a couple of paragraphs here. There is a huge section on Wikipedia about this, but this is what I felt was the most relevant. I'm going to read both paragraphs and you can give me kind of a thought. Yeah. All right. According to the Washington Post, although half of the people shot and killed by police are white, black Americans are shot at a disproportionate rate. They account for less than 13% of the U.S. population, but are killed by police at more than twice the rate of white Americans. Hispanic Americans are also killed by police at a disproportionate rate. 
A study by Harvard economist Roland Fryer found that blacks and Hispanics were 50% more likely to experience non-lethal force in police interactions, but for officer-involved shootings, there were no racial differences in either the raw data or when the contextual factors were taken into account. So what the economist is saying is that it's not race-driven. So he's saying that there's no racial difference in the raw data and the contextual factors when taking into account that blacks and Hispanics were more likely to experience non-lethal force. So I think what that means is that between the two blacks and Hispanics, there's no racial difference as opposed to overall. Okay, I thought that like he was saying there's nothing to prove that it makes a difference whether like they're black or white. And then the other one saying that half of the people shot were white, but blacks were shot at a disproportionate rate. And even though they only account for 13% of the U.S. population, they are killed by police more than twice the rate of a white American. So both shot, but blacks are more likely to die. It's devastating. I've had to listen to a grown man talk about how he had to have a conversation or his parents and grandparents had to have a conversation with him about how he's supposed to interact with police in order to survive the encounter and make it home. And I just think back to when we were kids and I never had to have that conversation. My parents never had to have that conversation with my brother. I didn't until I was an adult, realized that that was a conversation that people had to have with their children. Because when you're in the education system, especially public education system, law enforcement has this, like, golden halo over its head. They can do no wrong. They're here to protect you. You know, anything wrong, you just call 911 and the police are going to come save you or whatever. Like, whatever rhetoric that we were fed as children, it was different in the homes of black children, you know, Mm -hmm. they were taught to just be, just be submissive, just do what the man says, just so you can make it home alive. Because if you, if you argue with them, if you look at them funny, you might not make it home alive. And the more that I hear that story, the more devastating it is to hear it. And that's just my privilege is to have to learn about it as an adult and to not have to live it, not have to worry for my brother. I will never know that fear. I will never experience that conversation. And the privilege of being my skin tone is that I get to learn about it instead of having to experience it. Mm -hmm. So the closest thing I have to what you had just said was my mother telling me and my sisters how to survive men as a woman as a woman yeah how to survive parties how to survive walking alone at night and what my mom taught me and my sisters that there is such a thing as female personal safety that is taught there's a reason why women at bars have to be cautious about where they leave their drink or go to the bathroom in groups Or don't leave with some strange dude. Yeah. And it just reminds me a lot of what 
people in general in the black communities are taught growing up is the same thing that a lot of women are taught just for being a woman. Yes. There's this thing where people talk about race and how if you're a black American, where you have to survive police, you have to survive certain neighborhoods, you can't do certain things. And it reminds me of how in the early days before the civil rights movement of the 1960s, before today, where black men and women had to step off the sidewalk for a white woman, or a white woman would fear for herself and her safety at the sight of a black man because of propaganda and because of media. And before we move on, one of the most dangerous things, and I I don't know if you're aware of this, but one of the most dangerous things to the black community are white woman tears. Yeah, it just reminds me of To Kill a Mockingbird. So, I'm just trying to phrase this. A white woman's tears are the most dangerous thing to a member of the black community because the urge to just blindly defend the white woman comes so naturally if it's against a a black person as opposed to, you know, actually caring about women. And lots of men and women have been killed, jailed, and otherwise just based on the cry of a white woman. Remember how before we had started, I had asked you if you knew anything about Tulsa, the Tulsa race massacre? Um, So this is very relevant to what you had just said, and I think it's important that I at least read the first paragraph of it so that you can understand, not just you, but me and anybody listening can understand the, the weight of what you just said and why it's so true. Yeah. So the Tulsa race massacre in 1921, just after Memorial Day that year, a white mob destroyed 35 city blocks of Greenwood District, a community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, known as Black Wall Street, prompted by an allegation that a black man had sexually assaulted a white woman. The Tulsa massacre resulted in between 100 and 300 deaths, the decimation of more than 1,200 homes, and the burning of churches, schools, businesses, a hospital, and a library, according to a 2001 Tulsa Race Riot Commission's report. The most comprehensive review of the massacre, for for its part, the Red Cross reported that the attack left more than 10,000 Tulsa residents homeless. Calculated in today's dollars, property damage would be assessed in the tens of millions of dollars. All of that because a black man had been accused of sexually assaulting a white woman. Yeah. I'm sorry, that that fucked me up. I'm not okay. That's not okay. And it shouldn't have taken me 31 years to learn it. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and jump into some of the riots. Uh, because I think it's important and it comes with the Black Lives Matter. So yeah, you said you knew a little bit about the George Floyd riots, yes? Yeah, I, I was, you know, I was able to watch it live. For the safety of my own family, with the pandemic starting, I would, did not attend any, although there were plenty near me. 
you know, having a significant other who is very autoimmune compromised, I had to make decisions that were better for my family personally. But I watched everything unfold live and I was cheering everybody on from my home. Okay. Um, so because the recent riots that I'm going to just touch upon are so recent, I'm not going to dive super deep into them, but I will mention them. So the first one is the Ferguson riots in Ferguson, Missouri. They involved the protests and riots, which began on August 10th, 2014, the day after the fatal shooting of Michael Brown, a black man, by police officer Darren Wilson. Okay. Just keep in mind the timeline here. So the reason why this one is important, not only because the death of Michael Brown, but also when the Black Lives Matter network, Black Lives Matter was created, and obviously the death of Trayvon Martin. So, you know, we've got the death of Trayvon Martin in 2012. We have the acquittal of George Zimmerman in 2013. And then we have the riots and the protests that follow after that. Yeah. This was this was 2013. Not even a year later, we have another death of Michael Brown and riots that followed. So now we're getting back up to the death of George Floyd in 2020. And obviously since then, there have been deaths. So this is a continuous fight that keeps happening. Not every single death involves protests and riots. While personally, I think they should all involve protests, I don't necessarily think they should all involve riots, but again, one begets the other sometimes, so. Yeah. I think riots happen when police get involved. And I feel like it's when police get involved in opposition and they try to oppress and suppress the voices of those who are protesting. And outside of that, like riots happen for a number of reasons, but socially charged protests become riots when they are instigated at the protests by the opposing force. And that opposing force is more often than not law enforcement. On occasion, it can be civilian opposition that charges it, but in most cases, it is law enforcement. And a lot of it, in my opinion, comes from protecting yourself against those who are supposed to protect you. And we're not going to cover this today, but law enforcement started as like slave patrol. So the tension between police and African Americans goes way deeper than just Black Lives Matter. And it comes from a point where something is instigated. Someone is shoved to the ground by a full riot geared officer by his shield or they're pepper sprayed for sitting in the middle of the road. There's such policing on how we can protest. Like we have the right to protest and to organize, but it is so policed and there is just no right or wrong way that a black person can protest. When there's a riot, we tell them you need to protest peacefully. 
okay? Well, you realize it only started because X, Y, and Z happened and we were defending ourselves. Or when they're peacefully protesting, well, you shouldn't be kneeling because X, Y, and Z, you're a person of privilege. What does this affect you? I don't think that any of those riots happened because they wanted to go out and be assholes to local businesses, to the people who charge the local economy. It's just when that tension between the two opposing forces hits a combusting point. And I think that too much blame is laid on these literal civilians as opposed to the professionals that are supposed to protect us and that wield the most weapons in the public. I'm going to read a quote here, and this is from Megan Updegrove with todayville.com. And she wrote, the death of George Floyd in the streets of Minneapolis, Minnesota, ignited a global conversation on police brutality. The significant outrage invoked by this tragedy has manifested across the globe in the form of mass protests under the banner of Black Lives Matter. While a significant number of protests have been peaceful presentations of solidarity, a collective calls for change, and a number of cities throughout the United States and across the world have been devastated by violent riots, vandalism, and looting. So... That's just a small excerpt from her article. Don't judge the book by a cover. She's not talking ill of it. That's just her description in her first paragraph of, like, what, what was happening at that time. Yeah. That was what was going on following the death of George Floyd. A couple of riots that I did want to mention in the past, which I think are important. Of course, there are many, many examples, but these are just the ones that come to mind for me, the person doing the research. So if anybody wants more information on something else specific or they want to discuss it, feel free to comment. Feel free to shoot us an email or a direct message via our social media. However you want to contact us, just let us know. But this is just what we specifically have curated to discuss. Yeah. Some of the past riots. The Watts riots, sometimes referred to as the Watts Rebellion or Watts Uprising, took place in the Watts neighborhood and its surrounding area of Los Angeles from August 11th to August 16th of 1965. On August 11th, 1965, Marquette Fry, a 21-year-old African-American man, was pulled over for drunk driving. After he failed a field sobriety test, officers attempted to arrest him. Marquette resisted arrest with the assistance from his mother, Renee Fry. And a physical confrontation ensued in which Marquette was struck in the face with a baton. Meanwhile, a crowd of onlookers had gathered. Rumors spread that the police had kicked a pregnant woman who was present at the scene. Six days of uncivil unrest followed, motivated in part by allegations of police abuse. Nearly 14,000 members of the California Army National Guard helped suppress the disturbance which resulted in 34 deaths and over $40 million in property damage. Oh boy. This is real shit. This isn't just some, like, fairy tale figure from, from lore from long ago. Like, these are real people. And, you know, 
most of them that we're speaking about, at least right now, would be alive today. And they're not. Because, you know, the, the overarching abuse of power that has gone on for so long. I didn't do a deep dive in the Watts riots. I mean, while I would love to, I didn't get a lot of information on who the 34 deaths were. And I don't know if Marquette Fry was yeah. one of them. So just throwing that out there that yeah. I don't know the specifics. But yeah, they are real people. And this these are real causes. This isn't some issue that we're just making up for fake news. This isn't some issue that we're looking into, you know, ancient history lore about. This is important to be discussed. And that's why we're discussing it today. Yeah. And no matter how much it hurts to talk about these lives lost, it's important. And not discussing it would be a bigger injustice. So, and not learning about them, not choosing to learn about them is a the biggest injustice. Because that's how the the cycles allowed to progress and continue. Speaking of cycles allowed to progress and continue, we're now going to move on to the 1992 Los Angeles riots, also known as the Rodney King riots. So how much of that, how much do you know about that? I know that it's, it's had a huge effect in the foundation of a lot of the a lot of what we see today in activism it was a big turning point for the fight against police brutality and that I know there were riots all over California it wasn't just in Los Angeles there were riots littered across the coast and in the cities in between and in the small towns and it has affected pop culture and and it's a part of how we remember our history taught or just you know spoken to this day i mean there's there's music there's literal music based like mainstream music based upon that event you've listened to sublime long enough you you know that they were heavily influenced by those riots yeah so before I get into this information, I really want you to pay attention to the numbers. Okay. The Watts riots took place from August 11th to August 16th. 34 people died. Okay. $40 million in property damage. And nearly 14,000 members of the California Army National Guard helped suppress the disturbance. Okay. The 1992 Los Angeles riots, sometimes called the 1992 Los Angeles Uprising, were a series of riots and civil disturbances that occurred in Los Angeles County from April and May 1992. The unrest began in South Central Los Angeles on April 29th after a jury acquitted four officers of the Los Angeles Police Department charged with using excessive force in the arrest and beating of Rodney King. The incident had been videotaped and widely shown in television broadcasts. The rioting took place in several areas in Los Angeles metropolitan area as thousands of people rioted over six days, 
Following the verdict's announcement, widespread looting, assault, and arson occurred during the riots, which local police forces had difficulty controlling due to lack of personnel and resources. The situation in the Los Angeles area was resolved only after the California National Guard, United States military, and several federal law enforcement agencies deployed more than 5,000 federal troops to assist in ending the violence and unrest. Wow. When the riots ended, 63 people had been killed, 2,383 people had been injured, and more than 12,000 had been arrested. The estimates of property damage were over $1 billion. Koreatown, situated in just to the north of central L.A., was disproportionately damaged. The LAPD chief of police, Daryl Gates, who had already announced his resignation by the time of the riots, was attributed to much of the blame for the failure to de-escalate the situation and overall mismanagement. It's, it's a lot to unpack. So... It really is unfortunate that Koreatown took a huge hit. And I really think that there was just one way to avoid all of that. And the ball was dropped. All of those injuries, fatal and otherwise, could have been avoided if actual justice had been served. If the justice system hadn't been broken. So the reason why the numbers were important, outside of the obvious, like... Both involved police brutality, both involved a riot that ensued shortly after. Both riots lasted six days. Yeah. The first riot, 14,000 members of the California National Guard helped to suppress the disturbance. The second riot, only 5,000 of a collective of the California National Guard, the United States military, and several law enforcement agencies. 5,000 compared to 14,000. Wow. The amount of resources that has gone into silencing the black voice is amazing. Like, that's where our tax dollars are going. Instead of actually, instead of actually giving a shit about their lives, instead of actually doling out justice, you would rather save the white fragility of four cops who did the most grotesque thing that you could do on the job and caused all of that and then you want to spend money to send in our military to end it because they couldn't just be like oh well do crime go to jail straight to jail instead it's do crime but you're a cop so you're really above the law so that's fine unfortunately the first one i couldn't find information on how many people were injured So I feel like the amount of people injured is kind of a null point because you can't really relate it to anybody or anything. So with the difference between the two, it's a 27-year difference. Both riots lasted the same amount of time, but the difference between the amount of people they sent in to suppress it or help or whatever, however you want to view it, was significant. You know, 14,000 compared to 5,000. As a result and a direct correlation, I think, you've got twice as many people died 34 compared to 63 yeah and compared to 40 million dollars in property damage with the first riot you now have over 1 billion dollars yeah and honestly i'm not so gung-ho to protect capitalism the only thing that i really care about is those 
also marginalized communities that rely on their markets and their corners of these cities to exist, to survive, that took a hit. Like, really, it's upsetting that they took a hit. But I'm not so attached to capitalism that I really give a shit too much about the property damage or other businesses. I don't feel like I'd really be doing the Los Angeles riots a any form of justice if I don't mention that one of the reasons why Koreatown took such a hit was because of a shooting that had happened in the late 80s. A woman, a Korean woman of a like corner store shot a black girl who she thought was stealing when she literally had money on her to pay for whatever it was. I think it was like orange juice. Damn. Yeah, she shot and killed her and she didn't go to jail. And so alongside the Rodney King controversy that was happening at that time and the fact that the white police officers didn't go to jail and they were able to become acquitted they're also the black Mm -hmm. community is also still upset over that girl losing her life over orange juice and and the korean woman not being arrested justice was not served yeah that is a large part of why koreatown took such a hit even though yeah like you said they were still marginalized it was just at that point i think it was more personal then it had anything to do with systemic racism. It was just like, you killed one of ours, we're going to kill a bunch of yours or something like that. Yeah, I mean, my opinion's kind of not too shifted, but I understand attachment and that desire, that instinctual desire for retribution. Because, like, what's the price of her life? Orange juice? No. She's worth more than just orange juice. And so that's kind of what her life was chalked up to be worth-wise. Because once you take someone's life over something of value, you're equating that person's life to that value. And I understand it. I'm not going to give anyone any shit for it, you know, for participating in that, for being hurt by that. I understand. And I'm not, like, I'm, I'm here for you. I mean, the big number that stands out to me is 27 years. Yeah. 27 years later and the shit's still going on in 1992. I mean, it's still happening today, but like... Yeah. The span between, nothing was resolved, nothing was changed. The Almost the exact same thing happened no. again. In the same town! Yeah. It's not like, oh yeah, the LA riots, they really mirror the, you know, New York riots or whatever. No, it's the same fucking town! I know. I know. And we just lost someone this month in the same town where they stood on the neck of George Floyd. To police brutality. We just lost someone again for the same shit. It's still happening. People don't learn. So, we have two more segments before we're done. The last one's really important, so we're not going to skip it. But this one is, why riot? Obviously, we know, but to somebody who maybe isn't as involved or wasn't listening and just now tuned in, (laughs) why would you do that? Yeah. The last paragraph in Upta Grove's article, I want to just read her last statement because I think it has a lot of power to it. And then I'm going to have you watch a couple of clips, okay? Yeah, please. Updegro finished her article with the following statement. 
these disparate opinions position looting and violent rioting as an inevitable response to a minority oppression and injustice, while highlighting the logical inconsistency that occurs as a number of those being victimized are themselves minorities. While this debate continues to unfold, the chaos remains ongoing across the United States, where many protests have continued to take violent turns and the death toll continues to rise. Yeah. It harkens back to the LA riots with the Korean minority groups that were being targeted. They themselves are also minorities who are not receiving fair and equal treatment, who are also being targeted. They're fighting their own fight for space in this melting pot of a country. Yeah, and it goes even back further into our episode where we were talking about how there is, for some reason, a lack of communication between the minorities. They're not banding together to fight against who the real problem is. They're isolated. They think their problem is their own problem and nobody else is dealing with it. Meanwhile, you've got the what was happening to the Native Americans while slavery was happening. Yeah. Had they been able to communicate and work together, things might have turned out differently. I think there's also a level of Stockholm, like a symptom, where we, as cracker-colored people, we asserted ourselves as the authority on certain things, and we put ourselves in positions of power where we supply everything that these communities need to know. We supply it. You need to know how to do this, will come to us. We were also a big form of their news income, like their news input. So all the news that they would get, the, the current events, it would come from our mouths. And so it would come from our perspectives. And so what I think would happen is that someone would read the newspaper about how yet another crime was committed by one of those rascally black kids and so then they get these predetermined notions in their heads as a community that when someone who is black is in your store you pay extra attention you watch their hands you watch if they go into their pockets and if they've got merchandise in it and you defend this store with everything that you have because this store is all that we have and then you create essentially this divide between people who are in the exact same positions by the majority and you create this massive wedge in between them and then these things happen where lives are lost needlessly and then there's grudge there's grudge matches and i think it all just comes back to we put ourselves as the authority on everything we monopolized everything and so it was our truth or no truth. Mm-hmm. So now we've gotten to the point where we're going to watch a couple of clips. Okay. So when they say, why do you burn down the community? Why do you burn down your own neighborhood? It's not ours. We don't own anything. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have. That if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. And if the social contract is broken, why the fuck do I give a shit about burning the fucking football hall of fame, about burning a fucking target? 
You broke the contract when you killed us in the streets and didn't give a fuck. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. You broke the contract, so fuck your target. Fuck your Hall of Fame. As far as I'm concerned, they could burn this bitch to the ground. And it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. That was beautifully spoken. That was so charged. That was so electric. You could feel every syllable. You could feel how she felt. Every syllable she spoke. And wow. Honestly, the reason people don't want the looting and burning of the buildings is because they look at it on the macro scale and they think, well, these are people's livelihoods, people who have done nothing wrong. And while that's a blanket statement and may be true for some people, I'm not so attached to capitalism that I give too much of a shit. And it is not my place to tell somebody how to react when they've spent hundreds of years being slaughtered, being considered less than human, being beaten in the street with onlookers, being separated from your families. It's not my job to tell them how to process all that trauma. And for me, that's kind of how I try to look at it. I try not to, to look at it as a, well, those are innocent bystanders. It's like, well, you know, sometimes, you know, all these people started as innocent bystanders until they weren't, until they were abused and mistreated, grotesquely murdered. So I sent you the link for the article I used from Todayville, but she mm -hmm. said a lot of things that were similar to what you had said, and so I just kind of wanted to highlight them before we move on to the next clip, if that's okay? Yeah! Okay. So okay. she had said, similarly, an in-style piece by Jacqueline Schneider states, if you're more concerned about looted storefronts than brutal loss of life that spurred these protests, please reevaluate. Yeah. So it just begs the question, like you had said, what's more important, the orange juice or the life? Yeah. And to so many people, the orange juice, although it seems like a minuscule thing that wouldn't be worth a human life, it's the same thing. What's more important? your storefront and maybe 50 shoes or a human life. Yeah, and she actually had mentioned that some of the stores that were being looted were still supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. I mean, Target supported it and Target got hit hard. Yeah, she said the article goes on to highlight certain leading fashion brands such as Marc Jacobs and Coach have come out in support of the protest despite the material losses sustained by their brands as a result of the looting and destruction. Marc Jacobs published an Instagram post featuring the vandalism of a Los Angeles branch location with a simple caption, a life cannot be replaced, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, every piece of product that they make 
can be replaced. That glass can be re-put up. The debris and the broken bullshit can be swept up and picked up and taken care of and disposed of. And within months to a year, that store will be uh, behave like nothing happened. But that person will never be here again. And this community will never be the same. That mother will be without their child. You can never take that back. So with that, we're going to move on to the last clip. And okay. I'm going to show it to you, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of information behind it, okay? Okay. I think it started 400 years ago, and things just kept building up, building up, and heat, one thing, and uh, poverty. People's getting tired of being pushed around by you white people, that's all. You couldn't talk to anybody, so there was nobody to talk to. You couldn't talk to the cops because they didn't want to talk to me, they wanted to beat my brains up. Just like they've been doing all the time. And the only way, the only way it seems that we can ever get anybody at any time to listen to us is to start a riot. We got sense enough to know that this is not the final answer. It's just at the beginning. That was so well spoken. Basically what is said by the people speaking in the clips is that when there's no one to talk to, when there's no one who will listen, there is only one option, and that is to be as disruptive as possible. Because that is how you bring attention to yourself. The only, if the only way to get someone to listen is by breaking their shit, then you start breaking. And they're like, we're smart enough to know that that's not the final answer. But we're here talking about it now when there was no one to talk to about it beforehand. No one would listen to us. If I approached you, you'd want to beat my brains out. And that's the truth. Because disrupting the system forces parties who do not want to partake in the conversation, but who are integral to fixing the solution, it's the way to get them to listen. If you affect their money, they will listen. And they knew that. They know that. That's true today. Yeah, so, I mean, for me, this is a terrible analogy, but it reminds me of how children talk. Children oftentimes lack the base communication skills they need to properly convey emotion. So when they're upset, they throw tantrums or they break things or they hurt themselves or other people other children other animals yeah. and that's how they get the attention they need to get what they need think about it in an infant's way a baby only knows to cry when it needs something and so if it's loud enough the parents will pay attention to it and it sucks that that's what it takes it sucks that the screaming the protest the riots that's what it takes but in a lot of cases yes that's what it fucking takes because you're not listening. Yeah. And before long, this delicate dance that is the economy will crash because of these actions, because of the rioting and the looting and the burning. And at some point, a conversation is forced. And that's incredibly important. So... That's all I have for those clips, and if I can, I'm going to put the audio in there, because I think that it is important that other people hear it as well. Yeah. The details that I mentioned earlier are the time difference. 55 years. 
And it's still going on. And the same amount of emotion is seen in both. Yeah. I think there's a bit more emotion in the, the first one that you showed me, as there should be, but I think that is largely because there is no reason that she or her children should have to deal with what they've had to go through, especially after all of the efforts made by the people in the second clip in the 1960s. Yeah. And, and even before that. So, I mean, think about it this way. This is not the case, but it very well could be. Imagine if the person in the 1965 clip was her grandfather, because it could have been. Could have been. Easily. Yeah. And she's still dealing with it. Why do you think that she's so much more angry? Yeah. And then one of the people in the second clip had mentioned, like, 400 years and it's been building up. Still building. What's 55 years compared to 400? Nothing. But it's a lifetime for most people. Yeah. Barely a lifetime for a lot of the people that have been dealing with this. As we mentioned, Trayvon Martin was only 17 years old. Yeah. So the last paragraph I'm going to read is in relation to the victims. According to interactive.aljazeera.com, between 2014 and 2020, police in the United States killed at least 7,680 people. 25% of those were black. Wow. The website has a really neat interactive that users can toggle between 22 images and information of the recent police brutality victims. Keep in mind, these are only the more recent ones, and they're not even the most recent. They're just between the last year and the last few years. Yeah. A more inclusive website is sayevery.name, which has names and information on people as far back as 1882. Obviously, no one website is going to have every possible victim, but these are just some resources that are still a great way to honor the victims and give out as much information as we can on them. Yeah. That's it for all of the information that I have gathered on the Black Lives Matter movement at this time. We will touch upon this again in future episodes at a to-be-determined date. This episode, we're not going to list off our socials. If you would like to hear those, please listen to any other episode that we have. Instead, we would like to honor the victims by listing off their names, saying them, and remembering them. Duante Wright, age 20, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Andre Hill, age 47, Columbus, Ohio. Manuel Ellis, age 33, Tacoma, Washington. Rayshard Brooks, 27, Atlanta, Georgia. Daniel Prude, 41 years old, Rochester, New York. George Floyd, 46, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Brianna Taylor, 26, Louisville, Kentucky. Tatiana Jefferson, 28, Fort Worth, Texas. Aura Rosser, 40, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Stefan Clark, 22, Sacramento, California. Botham Jean, 
26, Dallas, Texas. Philando Castile, 32, Falcon Heights, Minnesota. Alton Sterling, 37, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Freddie Gray, 25, Baltimore, Maryland. Janisha Fonville, 20, Charlotte, North Carolina. Eric Garner, 43, Staten Island, New York. Michelle Cousseau, 50, Phoenix, Arizona. Akai Gurley, 28, Brooklyn, New York. Gabriela Navarez, 22, Sacramento, California. Tamir Rice, 12, Cleveland, Ohio. Michael Brown, 18, Ferguson, Missouri. Tanisha Anderson, 37, Cleveland, Ohio. One that I would like to include that we just lost is Amir Locke. These are just a few of the black Americans killed by police. There are so many more.